0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: Patrick Brown, the leader of the provincial conservatives, resigned. He first made an announcement last night at a late press conference that he'd been accused of sexual misdeeds, and then he didn't do it. And then later, overnight, he resigned, and now the conservatives will be looking for a new leader heading into the election coming up in June. Here to walk us through and try and answer some of these questions and sort this thing out, a guy who has actually been at Queen's Park. I was going to say he's been there. He's not been there. He's never been in something like this, uh, thankfully, but he has been at Queen's Park. He knows how that works. He also knows how the city works. He's now the principal at Maple Leaf Strategies. His name is Brad Clark. You know him, Brad. Thanks for doing this tonight. There you go. Brad, thank you for doing this tonight.
2: Thank you very much. What an interesting day and a half. It has
1: been rather interesting. Uh, Let me ask you this right off the bat, because there is a piece, a commentary at uh, globalnews.ca, and here is the headline, and I, I think it's telling. In today's climate, it doesn't matter if Patrick Brown is guilty, is the headline. Do you agree with that?
2: In his position, I agree with that. He's the leader of the official opposition at Queen's Park, Um, and he has to put the province first, the party first, the victims first. He should have resigned. He should have called for an independent investigation um, and by all means defend himself during that investigation. Um, But unfortunately, he chose not to listen to his advisors last night and was going to defend himself, and then later on realized that he had no choice.
1: We don't we've heard the bits and pieces of what the allegations are as much as we are able to know about them. And I don't think there's anybody who knows absolutely for certain whether Patrick Brown is innocent or guilty, except for Patrick Brown and the two women who have made these allegations. And that's the case in all these kind of things. But with these kind of charges being leveled against him, there's no way he could have continued on leading a party and somehow... If they had managed to win in the June election to govern the province, there's just no way with this hanging over his head that could have happened.
2: No, it it, it would be impossible. It was very murky waters. Um, the allegations came from when he was a member of Parliament in Ottawa, not at Queens Park. Um, as I understand it, there was no investigations or no complaints filed in Ottawa, um, and the complaints. through media interviews not sure how the media found out Uh, but there has to be some type of investigation Uh, the victims deserve to be heard Um, and mr. Brown deserves an opportunity to defend himself but none of that is going to happen in four months before an election and so he has no choice Uh, he had no choice he had to resign put the province first Put the party first um, and, and work through this process that he, he is now faced with um, to come out at the other end of it with, with some decision from an impartial body that whether or not the sexual harassment occurred.
1: Last Friday when we were doing the brightest conversation at Hamilton Radio, this topic actually came up, and not this one per se, not Patrick Brown, but it was that, that day, that week, was the 20th anniversary of the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky story-breaking It is pretty remarkable, I think, in 20 years how much things have changed because when Bill Clinton was accused of this kind of thing, it was personal behavior, it was his own time, nobody was really hurt, or at least so went the defenses. I'm looking at this now and saying I'm thinking Bill Clinton is a lucky man that he was in office when he was in office because times have changed very fast under our feet.
2: I would agree, and I think a part of it, it has come just through the evolution of what we now understands sexual harassment to mean uh, what the victims actually go through the, the, the um, I mean they, 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 they feel vilified, they, 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 it has been an attack on them personally and they've had to live with this day in day out um, and sometimes be in the same room with the person who, who perpetrated um, the harassment and attack uh, and the courts have now um, made it very clear that uh, employers can make the unilateral decision to remove a CEO, to remove the leader of a party in this case, from that position, um, while they're investigating a sexual harassment. Um, And so it is the proper thing to do. uh, And and let's not let partisan politics get in the middle of this. Let's just make sure that the victims are heard and there's an opportunity for both sides through an impartial uh, arbitrator, um, whether it's a judge or an investigator, Somehow, we have to get to the bottom of this. But in the meantime, there's an election pending, and the party, the Progressive Conservative
0: Party,
1: has to move on.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Continuing our conversation with Brad Clark, former MPP, former city councillor, talking, wrapping up the day's events on Patrick Brown. And Brad, there are some wrongdoings that a politician seems to be able to survive these days you could do certain things that are against the rules and probably maintain or hold on to your career not certainly not this but if if a politician was accused accused not convicted was accused of stealing money let's say would they have to resign instantly Uh,
2: a minister would a premier or prime minister would because of the ministerial responsibilities that they have under the Privy Council and Executive Council in Ontario, uh, MPs and MPP, generally it would be left up to them. Even they, just for
1: an accusation, not for a conviction or any kind of, you know, it, this is what someone said. You, you think it would?
2: Yeah. I, the response, Politicians have a, a very serious role, and and they have to remain above reproach. So even the accusation of an impropriety is sufficient to cause a breach in credibility of the government. And so ministers, premiers, prime ministers, they step aside when those things happen, and an investigation ensues. If they're cleared of wrongdoing, then they can come back to their position. If they're not cleared of wrongdoing, then other things will occur.
1: There was a tweet that came out this morning from Andrea, Hor- Andrea Horvath, of course, leader of the NDP that, uh, from Hamilton. And this is what she tweeted out. This morning, I'm reflecting on how now, more than ever, we need more women in politics. We need women to run, vote, and lead. Is that the message really from today, Brad? I- I'm puzzled by that tweet. I've got to be honest with you. It, that seems to me to be politicizing something that I don't think should be politicized.
2: It's a curious tweet. There's no doubt about it, um, and I'm not sure that it's quite apropos to the matter that is before us. Do we need more equity in politics between men and women? Absolutely, and I think most people would agree to that. I have to tell you that um, the problems with sexual harassment in politics of staff um, really should create the barrier for some women who I don't want anything to do with that. And so if you want to clean up Queen's Park and clean up Ottawa and make sure that the women are treated with respect um, and and, and treated professionally and civilly at all times, I think you'll find more women wanting to get involved in politics.
1: There's one other element to this today that uh, I I will admit I find troubling, and I think a lot of other people do too, although I don't know how many people have voiced this because it's um, probably something that is unpopular to voice right now. If Patrick Brown did what was alleged that he did, it is absolutely appropriate that he step down, that he get out of the way, that he basically be out of public office. If some of the thi- if the things that are said of him are true, he should be gone. But I cannot help but wonder, Brad, what has happened to at least the presumption of innocence, and it ju- it seems as though in this case particularly. The trial and the execution happened within about an hour and a half. And again, if he did these things, I want him gone. But maybe it's just politics. It seemed like there was no time for anything other than here it is and be gone. and And he can't defend himself. And I don't know if he can defend himself, but certainly there's in the modern world of politics, there doesn't seem to be much of a chance for that.
2: I don't think people would accept any form of defense for a man to be out um, with a young lady, who's a teenager in this one case, uh, feeding them alcohol and then taking them back to their, their house or their room. So just that behavior alone for a Member of Parliament um, is, is completely inappropriate. So Members of Parliament, MPPs, politicians in general, have to know that they should be rising above the bare minimum of standards of civility and so getting a woman drunk uh, in order to try and have your way with her because of who you are is completely inappropriate and and you should be punished when you're caught doing such a thing.
1: And I agree with you 100%. I agree with you 100% on that. Where what we don't know from this is his comment last night is that these things are entirely untrue and I don't know if they're untrue we don't know if they're untrue there are three people in the world who know for sure whether these things are true or untrue and I say I want to reiterate if he did them I'm with you he should be gone I do find and maybe it's not just politics I I, I am finding myself some part of me is concerned about the fact that our presumption of innocence seems to have completely vanished in the social media world
2: as an MPP uh... As a minister of the crown, I never put myself in a position where I was alone with any person, male or female. I always had staff with me. And let me and stop you there to for one second. sec. protect myself and the government from any allegations of wrongdoing.
1: But you know what's really interesting? And you bring that up, and I hadn't thought of this until you actually said it. It was about a year ago that the vice president of the United States, Mike Pierce, got shredded. Because he said, I will not go out to dinner or be alone with a female member of my staff for those very reasons, and that was made to be a mockery. I said any person. No, I. well, fair enough. But I, the idea is, it seems as though this is a... It's a very tricky scenario we're dealing with here. If you won't go and be somewhere private and potentially expose yourself... I don't mean expose yourself physically. I mean expose yourself to the possibility of an accusation... You could be in trouble you can be criticized and if you do you could be and you you took the conservative small c conservative position that you're not going to allow yourself to be in the position where this thing could happen i think that's very smart i think that's a very smart position to take i think a lot of people should do that
2: and i didn't i didn't in buy i mean i i i was the the teetotaler at queens park and and i don't hold that up as as some medal of honor being requested I wanted to ensure, because I saw bizarre behavior happening from people who were elected officials who were drunk, and and that is not what I view that position should be. So I made sure that, that I lived up to the standard that I would expect of anyone in that position.
1: We could keep talking about this. I say we've uh, the station, we've spent a lot of time here today. We're going to wrap it there. But uh, Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this.
0: My pleasure. Have a great evening. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: I really hope that you saw the story in The Spectator yesterday or on the spec.com. A truly fascinating story written by Steve Bust. It's about a couple in Hamilton who got divorced. And then once they were separating and going through the proceedings, they got squabbling about the details. Long story short, and it was a long story, but it's well worth the read. By the end of the trial, the story says each, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, each apparently spent over a million dollars in legal fees. At least, according to the story, at least seven different judges have been involved in the case at various points, including two stops at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Two of the original lawyers have actually died it's taken so long to get resolved and the final irony as steve writes in the story the agreement that is now binding what they finally came to after over a million dollars on each side of legal fees the agreement they came to and that is binding is now exactly the same as what they started with As a $35,000 lump sum payment that they had agreed to many, 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 many years, months before. They went through the whole thing and ended up right where they started. They could have saved millions of dollars. Now, I bet there's a lot of people listening right now who can relate to this. Not necessarily with the sums of money. Those are unique sums of money for sure. But to the concept, to the idea, because I hear stories from people time and again. People we know, people we pass, people we know who we know. They break up, they go to court, they get stuck in court, the wheels start to spin, the dollar signs start flying, and when all is said and done, the lawyers have all the cash. At least that's how it seems. Tracy Miller is a lawyer. You've probably heard of her because she's developed a new method for approaching the settlement of these kind of family matters called clarity over chaos. You've probably heard her commercials right here on this station. Uh, she She joins me now. Tracy, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, how are you? I'm, I've heard a lot of these stories. I bet I've heard nothing compared to the number of stories very similar to this that you've heard over the years.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, this one, the numbers are the numbers are gigantic. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly ones where it's 50,000, 100,000 easily in a lot of cases.
1: And I'm willing to bet that every single person that you've talked to about this, when they finally come to you, I bet every single one of them was the one who went into this saying, yeah, I've heard of those too, but that's not going to be me. I can do this properly and come out the other end without having spent all that money.
3: I think for sure. I think that's one of the problems is people think they know how much time, money, energy it's going to cost them when they get into one of these processes, and they really don't. And then they get so far in, I think they don't know how to get out. And it truly will just take on a life of its own if you're, if you're not careful, for sure.
1: Would it be a fair comparison then to someone who sits at the slot machine dumping quarters or dollars or whatever in and after a certain period of time you say, the machine is going to pop out a winner sooner or later, so I better stick it out here because I better be the one who gets the money as opposed to the next person?
3: I think in some ways. I think there there gets to be a certain sense of desperation with people. I mean, when you've invested so much time and energy and sometimes the emotional cost is worse mm. than, than the financial one, people get so much invested with it. Yeah, they just they don't know how to turn it off.
1: Is it about is it about just the money or when you talk about the emotional investment, when you get into family court, these are highly charged, often highly emotional things as much as we probably don't want to talk about ex husbands and ex wives hating each other, you don't want to let the other side win.
3: I don't. I think in a lot of cases, it's not just about the money because in a lot of cases, even this one, if you do the dollars and cents and figure out how much money they spent <laughs> and what the cost has been, there would be no way somebody that was somebody that wasn't emotional would, would invest that much in it. And it happens to people all the time if they don't take a step back and they're making decisions and they're really angry about it and they get into litigation that gets really acrimonious. Yeah, they lose sight of that economically it makes no sense to pursue it.
1: Yeah, I've got to win and I'm going to keep going until I do win and what's it going to cost well that doesn't matter. I'm going to win.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, it's so much more than money, especially when you get cases that a lot of cases that are over support amounts. If you actually do the math and figure out what the the financial hit has been to the whole family, to both of them, Usually it's going to far surpass what you're arguing about in terms of the money, but but people just lose sight of it. And, and the process engenders that too. It's not just that people are making decisions that they're going to regret later. The whole process is so acrimonious. It, it just engenders that.
1: So is this then the fault of the people who are involved because they can't separate their emotions from reality? They can't step back a little bit and say, look, i got to think about this logically? Or is it a system that creates this, or or a third option, I guess, Uh, I'm going to put the, I don't know, the sodium pentothal into your veins here to get the absolute (laughs) truth, or is this the lawyers who see dollar sign possibilities and say, hey, I can run the clock here for a while and make this thing go?
3: You know, I think like any profession, there's lawyers that are hired guns, um, Then in my world that's what you call somebody that really doesn't care, and they're just litigating it to see how much money they can make. There's an awful lawyer, a lot of lawyers that do give a damn about what's going to happen in terms of these cases. But once you get into an adversarial system where everybody takes sides and you get lawyered up and people are separated, when you combine that with the fact that people that are angry or upset or don't know what to do, you get a perfect storm. You get a case where people don't know what else to do. So in part, it would be better, yeah, if people would take a step back at the beginning and understand how much this is going to cost them before they wade into it. But to put family law in an adversarial system, yeah, that's part of the problem. That's what you're going to end up with.
1: We only have a few seconds before our break here, but what percent of lawyers do you think actually share the same competitive fire as the people involved in this and say, well, I don't want to lose either because you look bad on me if I lose. So we're going to fight this thing until I win this thing.
3: You know, to be honest, I mean, there's a part of it when you're a lawyer in something like this, you're paid to get results and you're paid to win. And and that's that's part of it. But you can't do anything else but that in that litigation system in the court system. Like if you're not going to be geared up to try and win and go ahead in that system as a lawyer, you shouldn't be in it because that's that's what you're there for. But then you come back to the question that the real problem is right at the beginning when people separate, they need to take a real hard look at what it's going to cost them. in in money and and emotional cost before they ever step into that arena. And some people are just going to go that way. Some people are, that's just what they're destined to do, but not most people.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Continuing our conversation with Tracy Miller, lawyer behind the clarity over chaos concept, talking about family courts, specifically family courts, and how things seem to spiral a little bit uh, or maybe more than a little bit, Tracy. But I mean, you call yours clarity over chaos. Is it really chaos for most people when they get into this?
3: I think it is. I think when people get into the court system, it's probably not going to be what they expect. It's not necessarily because of the, the people that are in the system. It's just that it's overburdened. It's going to take a long time. You're going to be in it for probably a year or longer. Um, it costs a lot of money when you're in there, and it polarizes people, right? It, it just really does. It keeps people separate, and it's a really long haul. you got to be in for the long haul if you want to go into that system.
1: Lawyers do, miraculously, somehow, it, it seems unlikely this would ever happen, but lawyers do also sometimes get divorced. Do they <laughs> fare better, when they're in family court because they actually know what to expect? Because the flip side, the other side is most people who go there, part of the other reason I think it's so chaotic is they've never been in that environment before. They don't know what to expect. So if a lawyer who works there goes, is it easier?
3: I don't know. I've certainly had a few cases where lawyers are involved as a client, and I don't know that we make the best clients because (laughs) it's as frustrating um, for us as it is for anybody else. And I think that Once you're one of the clients and you can't do anything about it and you can't move it ahead faster, even if you know the system, sometimes I think it's worse.
1: So the chaos part then, you get into this and I have to believe again that the, the lack of knowledge, and you just touched on it, the lack of knowledge of the system, when this thing starts rolling, when this ball starts rolling down the hill... Is, that a, is it a system that lends itself to being able to find an exit ramp for that ball rolling down the hill? Or once it's rolling, it's just going to keep rolling?
3: I, you know, I think people get to a point. I mean, every case gets to a point because probably 95% of them, I think, if I have the stats right, subtle, I think people get to a point where they just can't afford and they can't stand doing it anymore. But no, once it gets started, then people just kind of roll from one date to the next. I mean, as part of the process on clarity, we spend time going with people, over people, initially explaining to them, here's how long it's going to take you. And here is kind of a guesstimate of how much every step is going to cost you along the way. Right. So they have a decent idea of how long they're going to be sitting in the system waiting for something to happen
1: so what are the alternatives i know you do alternative stuff rather than getting into court then and battling this for thousands millions hopefully not millions this is an unusual case but thousands of dollars what are the legal alternatives for people
3: well first of all i think people need to they need to be informed initially about what the alternatives in. a lot of people opt to do mediation mediation arbitration at this stage of the game Um, if you retain a lawyer or if you retain a mediator to try and work out the issues between you and you can't get them resolved, then there's a lot of people now will hire mediators, arbitrators who are lawyers, but who can move it along a whole lot faster, right? I know in Kitchener, there's three people that do mediation arbitration. They all have about 30 years plus experience, and you move it along a whole lot faster than you do getting into that system. So and, and clarity is certainly another option for people. I mean, we take people right at the beginning, before it gets heated up, and try and focus on the issues and keep the keep the animosity down because all these cases are resolvable if people don't, you know, get really angry and get go off the rails.
1: But I'll tell you, I looked around at a number, at no names. I'm not going to mention names. I looked around at a number of lawyers' websites over the last day or so since I read this story. Mm -hmm. And there are very few that talk about arbitration. There are very few that talk about let's do this in a, I can lead you through a sensible lower cost path to this. I hear and read a lot on the web pages about how successful I am fighting in court. And I'm wondering why more lawyers aren't taking the position of let's find a better way to do this.
3: You know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I can tell you probably, you know, 10 years ago, I was on the same boat. You think that people, nobody wants to hire a nice lawyer. That's not what people want. People want somebody that has a reputation that's going to go in and try and crush somebody when you go into court. Um, and that's, I think, what a lot of people gear it to. But then you realize after, I mean, I've done this for 27 years, and you get really tired at watching the devastation. And then you start to realize that's not what people want. That may be what they get stuck with. That's not what they want. So I think it's a paradigm shift for lawyers and for clients. But, yeah, you're not doing your client a service if that's what happens. It really doesn't.
1: Last thing we got to run, but if a government ever tried to put a law in place, because they're always trying to do stuff, allegedly, mm-hmm. to help us. Yeah. Uh, if they ever put a law in place to say, we are going to cap legal fees for family disputes because we realize how out of control these can get, would that help? Or would that cause lawyers just not to put in as much time in Or would that cause some a lot of lawyers to just say, I'm not even going to take the cases anymore? Well, how would that work?
3: I don't know. I don't know how they would ever be able to do that. I guess it would be kind of like the medical provision. But if it, some cases, if there is a really low cap on it, I think you'd find that a lot of lawyers just would wouldn't do it. But, you know, you never know. The government tries to regulate a lot of stuff in family <laughs> law, and I don't know how successful it's been.
1: It is, uh, it is a fascinating. I would encourage people to go read the story. Um, it's in the spec. It's on the spec.com. And they can find it there. And I would encourage people also, if they happen to be in that scenario, maybe consider some alternatives than spending all of your money fighting in court. There, is, there are better ways. Uh, one of the people who could actually help you with that is Tracy Miller. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Scott Radley show, 900 CHML, that ticking, no, it's not 60 minutes, that ticking signifies that the doomsday clock, you heard about the doomsday clock, the doomsday clock, the doomsday clock is this, I don't know, media, PR, I don't even know what it is. They it's a clock that a bunch of people every once in a while, they call the media together and they say, oh, we're changing the time on the doomsday clock. And today they've moved the hands 30 seconds closer to midnight, 30 seconds closer. We are now 30 seconds closer, apparently, or something to nuclear annihilation. What does that mean? I don't know. They tell us that things are really dangerous, and I think probably we all recognize that with Kim Jong-un and with Trump and with all the rest, there, there's a lot of posturing and a lot of talking. So they've now moved the hands to say, we are now 30 seconds closer. I believe we're now a minute and a half, or is it two minutes? Let me find it here. It's now two minutes to midnight. Again. don not don. We are two minutes away from something really bad happening. But I don't have any clue what this thing actually means. And frankly, I don't understand... Why the media, and I'm in the media, so this is a self-deprecating, you know, little self-critical thing. I don't know why we go rushing to cover this thing when it's a bunch of people sitting around saying, oh, let's move the hand 30 seconds today. Why 30 seconds? I don't know. It just seems appropriate, Bob. I mean, what does this actually mean? And why are we paying any attention to this? We understand what's going on in the world. We don't need a bunch of people standing in front of a fake clock. Oh, and by the way, if you've never seen the production values that go along with the doomsday clock, oh, oh you have got to tune in one day and see how they do this. A guy walks up. Now, the clock is only the last 15 minutes. So it's just a quarter of a clock. And a man walks up. And to great fanfare, I don't know if there was a drum roll or not, but there certainly should have been, along with some very somber, morose orchestral music. Dum, 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 dum. He took the the hand and he went, boop, and he moved it 30 seconds. It was like, oh! look at that. The the doomsday clock has moved everybody. Now let's everybody write a story. What does this mean? Why do we do this? Why do we spend time on this thing? Let me tell you why this is so incredibly ridiculous. In case you're thinking, no, the doomsday clock is a really accurate arbiter of where we stand in the world of nuclear threats. 1962. Anyone ever heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Ben who's through the glass here, who will be answering the phones next hour. Ben was like 50 years still away from being born, and he put his hand up. He heard about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Everybody knows about the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you want to see a great movie, uh, it was called 13 Minutes, I believe, was the name of it. It's a long time since I've seen it now. But there are great documentaries. There are great stories. Everyone, Everyone knows about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was unquestionably the closest the world has come to all-out nuclear war. I don't think there's too many people who are going to deny that. I don't think too many people are going to argue that point. Khrushchev and Kennedy staring themselves down with Castro in the middle and all this stuff, it was, I wasn't even alive. But everything that I've ever heard, everything I've ever read, everything I've ever studied about this, it was as terrifying a time where people truly, this is when you were practicing getting under your desk in the classroom. Like your desk was somehow going to protect you from a nuclear blast. I'm not exactly sure who the brainiac instructor was who said, I know what to do. If a 4 trillion ton megaton atomic bomb falls on our school, if we get under our desks, we'll all be fine. Duck and cover. Whatever. Anyway. Anyway. This was when people, though, were practicing hiding and protecting themselves from nuclear bombs because they believed that any moment a nuclear bomb could actually be fired and land in the States. It was a really terrifying time. In 1962, when that was going on, when the world was on the brink of a nuclear war, do you know where the doomsday clock was set? We're at two minutes right now. Do you know where the doomsday clock was set in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Seven minutes till midnight. So what they're saying is, essentially, right now, we are massively closer to nuclear annihilation than they were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Does anybody really believe that? I mean, some people are probably saying, oh yeah, some, one of these guys is going to press the button. I, no, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. It's time we actually start f- filtering out the noise and the stupidity and the things that people are doing just to try and get attention and say let's concentrate on important stuff the doomsday clock may be the stupidest thing that people do to and and but we all all the media we all show up to take our pictures and look at this and go ah, we've moved 30 seconds closer who no we are exactly the same as we were yesterday don't pay any attention to it In fact, I shouldn't have even talked about it tonight except for the fact that it drove me nuts to see this thing today and to see how much attention this group is actually getting and they do all the time. I hope next time they do it, the doomsday clock falls over during the presentation and we can say, okay, now we're officially like no more doomsday clock. Hold my, cross my fingers, see if that happens.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: I have been over the last number of weeks, and I did it before when the first season was out, I have been watching the series The Crown on Netflix. It's a very interesting show. I am not a fan of period pieces. I didn't watch Downton Abbey. I'm not into that kind of stuff. But this, I got to be honest, this caught me by surprise how interesting The Crown is. It's the story of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. I'm not even a real monarchist. I don't have a hate for the monarchy i don't have a love for the monarchy i'm sort of neutral to it but it's a really interesting show lots of stuff in there as i've been watching episode after episode lots of stuff i knew nothing about nazi connections with the family true or not Mm, think so not positive misbehaving kennedys at buckingham palace jackie and john f kennedy true i don't know but it's there it must be partially true right And it's not just the crown. There are lots of other things that are out there right now. Lots of other shows and movies. The Post, but the Pentagon paper story at the Washington Post, that's out there right now. I plan to see that one. Last little while, I watched Hacksaw Ridge. Fantastic movie based on a real story. A different tact entirely, watched Eddie the Eagle based on a true story, not to be quite as serious. Uh, Elvis and Nixon, another one. Very funny movie, in fact. Elvis and Nixon, if you see that one. The Butler Apparently based on a true story lots and lots and lots of other ones stories that are based on real life with history but are they accurate more to the point should they be accurate is that our expectation that they be accurate Scott Henderson is a professor of communications popular culture and film at Brock University he joins me now Scott thanks for doing this tonight oh a pleasure Scott when you sit down to watch one of these and I'm sure you do whether it's a serious one like the crown or something silly like Eddie the Eagle or whatever what are you expecting to get from it as far as accuracy?
4: You know what? I'm expecting maybe a kind of rudimentary you know, affiliation with accuracy. The, the skeleton will be there that says <laughs> these are the main story events as we know them. Everything else in here we've had to kind of reinvent and reimagine to make it work as a story, to make it work as a two hour film or as a, an eight part series or whatever it is you're making.
1: So there is a whiff of truth. They have they have sprayed the 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 uh, you know spray room spray of truth over this and hope that it'll at least be enough to keep you interested.
4: I think so. I mean, you know, you'll start a film and you'll see based on a true story. Yes, yes. Okay? That, that 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 gives me a sense. It's going to be kind of accurate. Or you get my favorite, the inspired. By real so, okay, <laughs> what does that mean in here there's a nugget of something that really happened <laughs> and now someone's thinking how cool could this have been if we told it this way
1: yeah i think one of the uh, the great ones with that was cool runnings we knew yeah. there was a jamaican bobsled team and after that i don't believe they had john candy in the picture i mean he was in the picture but he wasn't there in calgary but yeah inspired by true events but should we be demanding more accuracy. And the reason I ask that question is, I know it's Hollywood, I know these are movies, but there are people, Scott, that are actually watching these and believing this is what happened.
4: Oh yeah, there's and there's websites devoted to pointing out inaccuracy. So you've got people watching the crowd saying, hang on, there's a building that was in this shot and this scene, that wasn't built till three years later because I know my architecture and you know, they want it to be really accurate. And we we want these stories to be the way that they're told to us. It's much more exciting. I mean, you know, the reality of, I think, being part of the monarchy, being part of the political establishment is lots of boring meetings and things eventually getting decided after much discussion. And that would make for terrible, terrible television or film.
1: Yeah, I think most if we were to actually just follow the queen around for most of the day, probably pretty dull. I'm not saying she's a dull person, but I I don't really envy her life, to be honest with you, for the very reasons you just said. Probably not great television.
0: No,
4: our day to day lives don't have the kind of narrative beats that a story does. So, you know, in The Crown, you've got the Winston Churchill character with the the great smog in the 50s and doesn't believe it. The reality is, you know, people eventually kind of pointed out to him all the things that were going wrong, and, okay, this is a, a real problem, let's deal with this. But, of course, in the story, you have to have someone hit by a car in the fog just to, you know, give it that extra oomph. That So there's an event that never happened, but, you know, it made the point that he eventually woke up to the, the tragedy that was unfolding.
1: But how many people do you think, and and this is completely hypothetical. You would have no way of knowing just from a, a, a sense of this, how many people at the end of watching, and we'll talk about the crown. We'll use that as the example, watch an episode and then go and research it to see what the truth is from that episode. I know I did that with the episode about the connection to the Nazis. I don't want to give the whole thing away, but I actually went and looked it up after to go, that really happened. And how many people simply take everything at face value, do you think?
4: Well, I think a lot of people take it at face value. They know that there's there's a whiff of truth here. this is the way they're going to see it. and you know to be honest, i I studied history back in the day. I mean, history is nothing about competing stories over what really happened, right? I mean, we've got some documentation, but we're trying to always piece it together. How did this really unfold? so and historical drama is doing some of the same, but with a great deal more poetic license so I think it, it, it's a lot of people. I mean, I'm sure Wikipedia lights up at those (laughs) moments when, you know, something like this happens. And, you know, there's an abundance of articles and magazines and newspapers, online forums, fact checking and saying, did this really happen? And pointing to, you know, what were the historical reasons? And, you know, the makers of the crown took those historical beats, you might call them in the story, those moments, and, you know, they developed a narrative around them.
1: One of the truly amazing things to me is when you watch The Crown, and obviously you have and a lot of people listening have, or again, any other, what do we call these, historical dramas, docudramas, whatever we want to call them. We've watched these and some are better than others. The the serious ones especially, we will probably say, okay, I can actually believe that. But there was one event that in the last last election, two elections ago, uh, Sarah Palin, we all know that Sarah Palin said, I can see Russia from my back porch because that's what Tina Fey said she said on Saturday Night Live. So that became the real truth. That's what people latched on to. What she really said was about Russia. There are our next door neighbors and you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska, from an island in Alaska. We don't just take this at the serious things. We will see things on TV and as long as someone is portraying a character or putting something sort of historic or real in their mouth, we actually seem to be willing to buy into the Hollywood version almost more than the real version.
4: Oh, yeah. I think I think it's a quote from John Ford, the old Hollywood director, who I think it's in one of his films where a character says, you know, when you're
1: choosing between
4: truth and the legend, print the legend. Mm. Because that's, that's what people are going to gravitate towards. And that is how we remember things. And, you know, but there's been studies where people talk about historical events and people's memories are shaped greatly by no docudrama fiction they've seen about those events. That's how they imagine it happened or how they even recall
1: being there. Well, and that's really the tricky part. And that's really why I wanted to have you on because the thing that strikes me about this is when you, when people see these, these stories, when they're done as well as some of these have been, have the capacity in a great way to affect our belief about these people. Uh, whatever your thoughts were for my last example on Sarah Palin, that Tina Fey line helped to establish her credentials as adult, and she could never shake that. And with the Queen, I, I would love to know if the Queen has actually watched this and what she thinks about what people think of her now, having seen her portrayed this way, or the rest of her family. Because people, I'm convinced, believe that this is who those people are. They derive their understanding or their opinion of people by these.
4: Oh, for sure. Now that this is this is how they're imagining the queen lives and how she behaves and what events have gone on and shaped her and, you know, how they take this as a portrayal, whether it's negative or positive, is going to be based on that. And I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting to get up to the next series and bring in, you know, Princess Diana and bring in stuff that, you know, I think viewers have a much more tangible relationship to and stronger memories and are going to say wow this is <laughs> this is what happened and they're going to you know I think believe some of the behind the scenes because they trust that the makers of the series are digging into these facts and they do have a bank of researchers who work there who are trying to dig up interesting points to bring into the stories
1: well it's clearly fictionalized we know that we we know that we, don't, we know that we don't know what Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were saying on the phone when she was in Ghana and he was in London. We have no idea, but we seem to be able to suspend our disbelief and say, well, they're talking on the phone, well, that may be what they said. It's clearly fictionalized, yet it's portrayed as a documentary, which makes us able to buy into it.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, it has enough of that reality, so we can say, yes, those events did happen. And as you say, you know, none of us heard those phone calls, but the outcome of those phone calls aligns with the outcome of what we know from the real world, we'll think, "Well, that must be how it happened." That's one interpretation. Is that a good thing? Ultimately, is it a good thing? I mean, I think it's a good thing in the sense it makes us think about history. And you know, I think any time that we're at least remembering the past and using the past in some way, and the post is maybe a good example of that. What people are saying it's a kind of blatant knock at the Trump administration's, you know, ideas about fake news, but it works for a lot of people. They'll go see it because there's Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and the Steven Spielberg movie, and they'll learn that we've been through this before where a president distrusted the media and the media pushed and pushed. So even if the story is simplified, it, it uses history in a way, I think, that makes a point for people.
1: Well, and there are certainly stories that over the years have been based on real stories, movies and series. My favorite miniseries of all time is Band of Brothers, based on a true story. Again, based on, I don't think it's supposed to be a historical recollection exactly, but you, you can make legends with these kind of things. You can also destroy legends.
4: Absolutely. You know, there's, there's examples of both. But, you know, the, the legend making, I think, is very significant. Because very often, you know, the strongest films and the ones that have taken... The small stories that we've overlooked and sort of made this recast, you know, something like Rudy as, as a yes, film, yes, like, yes, a football player, we true story. And we all know that story, and it becomes a kind of symbolic moment for us that we can kind of grab onto.
1: It is a uh, it is a fascinating discussion, and I, I I encourage people not only to watch these things because they are good and they do, as you say, make you think about history, but also to watch them. How would you describe it with a uh, how, how, how should you watch these shows then when you're watching them?
4: I think with a careful eye, I mean, you're going to learn something about, you know, the longer history, at least those kind of key points. And then, hey, if you like these kinds of shows, maybe do some additional reading, go get a historical book and start to read up on some of these fascinating issues and recognize, wow, there, you know, a lot has gone on and we can learn a lot from the past.
1: Thanks to Oliver Stone, we know that the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, Cuba, the Russians, and about seventeen other groups were all involved in the killing of JFK. So that was good. Yeah,
4: well, very cool. <laughs> and you missed Marilyn
1: Monroe. Marilyn, yes, Marilyn Monroe was in there too. Yeah, and I, I as I say, there were a bunch of other ones. But again, um, this, these things have the power to really affect public opinion and. Um, I think you should take them with a bit of a grain of salt, as you say, but they do, if nothing else, I think they do expose some people to history they didn't know existed.
4: Exactly. And, you know, I I think that can be a beneficial thing as long as we are willing to dig and find out some of the true facts behind this and not accept, you know, the legend as the reality.
1: Scott Henderson, professor at Brock University, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure, Scott. Uh, Scott mentioned, and we both mentioned, the movie The Post. I'll give you a little bit of a trivia about the post that uh, here in Hamilton that is you might find a little bit interesting. The post is about the Washington Post, in case anyone was not clear. The Washington Post, which was the newspaper that printed the Pentagon Papers. It also printed the Watergate stories, Woodward and Bernstein, that brought down President Nixon ultimately. Well, those presses that actually ran those stories... That the, new, that the paper spun around and pumped out the papers that led to those enormous stories. Any idea where the presses that printed the Watergate papers and the Pentagon papers, any idea where they are now? The Hamilton Spectator is printed on those presses. Do you know that? Some of the biggest newspaper stories, journalism stories of all time, and yeah, they are, uh, they are now in Hamilton in the Spectator building, the blue presses, I'm told. We have different, uh, there's the green, there's the red, I think there's yellow and there's blue, or there's just green, red, and blue. Anyway, the blue presses are the Washington Post's old presses that came here years and years ago. They all got fixed up and stuff. So yes, when you pick up your spectator, you are picking up a little piece of history. At least you can make that case. (laughs) whether whether you are willing to buy that or not, but that's absolutely true. Those, uh, those presses are the ones that were used at the Washington Post. So when you watch that movie, if you go and see that movie, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, and directed by Steven Spielberg, you will know there is a Hamilton connection there. Meaning, now, did it get nominated for a Best Picture for Academy Award? It got nominated for a few awards. I don't know what for. Meryl Streep is nominated. So you've got that Hamilton connection, and The Shape of Water directed by Guillermo del Toro, which was largely, or at least a big chunk of it, was filmed in Hamilton. Some of it was on McNabb, by the way, if you're wondering. Uh, another Hamilton connection. So the Academy Awards this year, even though I have no intention of watching because I generally, as a rule, don't watch, there's going to be some Hamilton connections there. So at least there's that. Whatever else you might watch for, I don't know, but at least there's that.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 DHML.